Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Before we get into today's podcast, I do want to make a quick announcement, guys. Today is the day that the charity shirts go live. So this is something that my wife has been in charge of, and I'm super excited to launch. We are going to be launching a limited shirt every single month and donating all the proceeds to a different charity. So this month, we have the Got Strong by Lifting Others shirt. This is the only time this will ever be available. We are never going to remake or resell this shirt and all the proceeds go directly to Fuck Cancer, which is a cancer foundation um, that we found near and dear to our hearts because we have people in our lives and on our team's lives that have been affected by cancer. And I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that could agree with that statement. So not only will all of the proceeds from the shirt you purchase go directly to that foundation, but we will also personally match whatever you donate. So if you donate 50 bucks, we will donate 50 bucks. And at the end of the day, you are doubling your charity uh, donation for whatever you put forward. So we're really excited about this, guys. There's a link in the description of the show notes. If you want to get a shirt, it's a tailored coaching shirt with a special quote on the back, God Strong by Lifting Others. Um, They are an athletic fit. I'm super excited about these. You can click the link. You can check out the shirt on myself and the female one on Shannon so you can see pictures of us wearing it. And then you can choose how much you want to donate and get your shirt shipped to you directly. So thank you guys for that. Um, That is the only announcement I have. Please participate in this charity. This is the first one of many to come, and this is the only time we are planning on doing for the near future one about cancer. So we would really appreciate your donation, and we would love for you to be rocking one of our shirts. Today we are going to do another FAQ style podcast. So recently, um, probably a couple weeks now, weeks ago now, I did a FAQ podcast where I just picked like three common questions that I have gotten over the last however many weeks. And just kind of dive into those topics and, and kind of share my thoughts and really just deep dive into each one versus having a long form Q&A where we're answering, you know, 10, 15, 20 questions in a single podcast. So there's three specific questions that I have been asked recently that kind of triggered my thought process and kind of were almost like light bulbs. Like somebody asked me this question. I realized like, man, I've been asked that question many times. Um over the last year or over my entire career. So I wanted to pick those questions, I wanted to focus on those questions, and I just wanted to basically dive into each one. Um, So the first one in today's podcast is gonna be how to train for progress and longevity. So this is a really good question, it's a really common question I get from anybody who is approaching the age of 30 or is already over the age of 30. Um, I don't know why 30 seems to be that number, but I can even tell you for myself, I'm, I'm approaching 30 and for me, I even think about like, man, I, I've already in the last 10 years, I've beaten my body up pretty bad with dumb things done in the gym, sports, martial arts, things like that. And it's, it's you know, it's time for me to take care of it because it's starting to get harder to move well, to crawl around with my daughter, to be agile, things like that. So it becomes more of a focus later in your life when re- realistically we should be doing this stuff prior to make sure that it doesn't become 
hard later in our life. Um, however, that's not usually the case as most of us know. So how do, how do we train for progress and longevity? This is where we have to understand the principles that lead to good progress and understand that the methods in order to get there may change as you are trying to avoid injury and or just you know maintain better health. First, we know the principles of changing your body composition are pretty simple. You need a certain amount of volume and intensity and or effort inside the gym to build muscle, get stronger, burn calories calories to lose weight, so on and so forth. And you also need to be in a deficit of calories in order to lose weight or a surplus to gain weight, uh, maintenance to maintain weight. So we know that these are the principles and those don't change. You know, you still have to train with intensity. You still have to do a decent amount of volume. You're still going to have to watch your diet and make sure that that's in check while you are aging. But, um, and, or if you are aiming for longevity, right? So I think there's a lot of people who don't really think about the longevity side until they get to 30, 40, 50 years old. And they're kind of like, well, shit, I want to live a long time. How do I do that? Whereas when you're in your 20s, for a lot of people, you're just trying to look good. You're trying to be jacked. You're trying to be ripped. You're trying to be as strong as you possibly can. And you really don't care about longevity because at the moment you feel invincible. And you're like, I, I could do this forever. Like, I'll be fine. But the reality is, is you absolutely can chase both. Um, and you should, you should be prioritizing one at each time because I think having one isolated focus is the best way to get to a goal. You know, the goal is to keep the goal, the goal. If you have 10 goals, it's gonna be hard to achieve any one of them, but it doesn't mean that you can't keep certain skills or assets or habits in the shadow, right? So if I'm chasing aesthetics, I can still try to maintain my health. I might not improve my health during this cut, but I can maintain my health as much as possible. Um, same thing goes with performance. Now, how do we program for that? How do we train for that? How do we eat for that? How do we how do we get to a point where we can look really good, feel really good, be really strong, but actually have longevity, have good blood markers, have good general health? Um, the first thing to remember is going to be utilizing things like free weights and tempos and rest periods and pauses and bands and things like that. What these are going to be doing is intensifying the process of training without adding load and or intensity or volume. So if we add a band to a, a movement, we are adding accommodating resistance, but it is not necessarily placing more load on the joint. If we are utilizing tempos, we will increase the tension on the muscle fiber by slowing the negative down, slowing the concentric down, adding pauses, creating more tension, find a better mind muscle connection, and we can intensify the training without adding load. And, and the reason this is important is because as we add load, we are not only adding more tension and or resistance to the muscle, which we very well are. Um, I, I always say muscles are stupid because it, it, the more tension you apply, the more they will feel need to grow. But they don't know if you are applying tension via a barbell or a kettlebell or a dumbbell or it's a easy bar curl versus a spider curl. Really, we have joint positions and we have muscle contractions. So if you can work on intensifying your muscle contractions and or negatives while avoiding the process of adding load to your spine, adding load to your knees, adding load to your hips, adding load to your, uh, your low back, your joints, everything, your ankles, then you are going to continually increase muscle fiber tension. You're going to increase muscle fiber tissue. You're going to increase strength. You're going to burn more calories, but you are not going to 
put your joints in a vulnerable position. So the first things I always like to do with clients who are training that have joint issues and or are getting older and or are worried about getting older and longevity is that I'm going to be more likely to use things like tempos. Like we will add tempos to your exercises. We will manage rest periods because I want to keep blood flow and oxygen in the muscle. I want you to keep a pump in between sets because that's going to relieve some tension on the joint. Um, we want to focus on these things because they do help quite a bit. Um, the next part of this is exercise sequencing. If you're worried about joint health, if, if you're getting older, you need to exercise, you sequence your exercises properly. A program is a work of art. It shouldn't just be a bunch of exercises slapped together on a list. Then, otherwise, you're just doing things without considering how does this exercise affect the next exercise? Not only from a fatigue standpoint, like am I going to be able to optimally perform that next exercise by doing this one first, but also is it going to help my posture or make it worse? Is it going to uh, put my joints in a vulnerable position or not? Is it a risk versus reward thing, right? Is it going to improve the way I move or is it going to disapprove? It's going to make it worse. Um, that's really, really important. And then also energy systems. Is this going to affect my performance in the next one, which will also perform uh, affect my recovery and my ability to improve? Yes or no. So if I am doing a barbell squat, like let's say I'm doing a, a barbell box squat, and that's my like compound lift of the day, I'm probably not going to do all my accessory work before that. I'm not going to do a bunch of RDLs. I'm not going to do a bunch of lunges because my low back is going to be more fatigued now going into that box squat, and I'm either A, going to hurt myself, or B, have to lower the load that I'm using, which is going to lower the intensity and the volume, and it's going to you're basically sacrificing the results you could have. Now, what you can lunge or RDL is probably going to be pretty similar, if not the same, as what you would if you did it before or after the lift, right? It, it's not, it's an accessory movement. So it's not a maximal contraction. So it's not really like you're trying to max that lift out. It's not a one rep type of thing. So you're not going to be, it's not going to be disadvantageous by doing an RDL or a lunge after the box squat. It's actually very common, but because you are sequencing things properly to go along with your energy systems and make sure that the thing that comes first gets the most energy and attention and mental focus, because at the beginning of the workout, this is where your energy is the highest. Your fatigue is the lowest. Your mental clarity is the highest. Your motivation is the highest. Like you're ready to go. That's when you should do these bigger movement patterns that require more weight and have more risk of injury. However, you shouldn't just jump right into that. You should also have a sequence before that to prepare you for that. And this is what I call the priming phase of a workout. And this is where, let's say for that squat again, it, whether it's a front squat, a box squat, or back squat, uh, anything, hack squat. I'm probably going to do a few things. One, I'm going to do some hamstring curls. I'm going to fire up my hamstrings. Um, it's going to allow you to sit a little bit lower into the squat. It's just going to feel better. You're going to have a little bit more uh, joint fluid and lubrication in, in joints. It's just going to feel better. Like when I do leg curls before I squat, I feel way better. But I am activating. I'm not fatiguing. So when I go into those leg curls, I'm leaving five reps in the tank or more. I'm just getting a little bit of a pump and then moving on come back, get a little pump, move on. Just get that blood flow in there, get the hamstrings fired up. I'm also going to do a Pavlov press a or a side plank variation. One of the two because that anti-rotation tends to allow better external internal rotation of the hip sitting into that squat. Um, there's not a lot of studies on this that I'm aware of. There could be, I have no idea. But it's more from anecdote, learning from other strength coaches over the years and, and 
using it in practical application myself and with clients, but doing some kind of side plank or power press or some kind of anti-rotation where you're resisting rotation, it just helps you create more external torque and force sitting in that squat. And you just notice that you just drop your hips in there. Um, and then sometimes I'll throw in some upper back work because you can really never train your upper back enough, in my opinion, for good posture. And it does help sometimes when you're racking the bar on your back to have a little bit of a um, some trap work done and some external rotation of your shoulders so you can grab the bar properly. Um, but that's the activation phase, right? So now I'm doing something to prepare my body to squat heavy. So I've done something that's not fatiguing, but it's very, uh, promoting of good performance in the squat, the deadlift, the bench press, whatever my main compound lift is of the day. And then I go into my accessory work that requires less mental focus, less skill, has a lower injury risk and requires less, uh, energy in order to perform. Um, so you kind of have to sequence. Now, the last thing you would do in your workout is any metabolic work. So if you're going to jump on the assault bike and do some intervals for a finisher, if you're going to do like really high rep, uh, arm work, uh, side delt work, leg work, calf work, anything like that, ab work, that all comes at the end because it's mindless. You don't really need to work hard. You don't need a ton of energy. You're not lifting super heavy. It's just like burning out, right? You're just going to failure at high reps with lightweight. That stuff is saved for the end. Or it's metabolic in the sense where you're doing something to burn calories like the assault bike, for example, it takes less mental clarity to do that and the injury risk is very low. So worst case scenario, you burn slightly less calories, which is probably not going to happen if you just perform a little bit lower. Maybe you're, you're pushing at 85% instead of 100%. But that's okay. Like I'd rather sacrifice that 15% there than in your squat bench or deadlift, it, it, in your general strength. Um, now the, the last thing I will say is like you can add in a primer between the activation phase and the compound lift phase. And that's basically going to be some kind of explosive movement pattern with a very light weight that's going to mimic the, the pattern of the movement you are going to do. So if you're doing a squat, it could be a, a box jump or a, just a squat jump or like a dumbbell squat jump. Um, for a deadlift, it could be a broad jump. For a bench press, it could be a plyo push-up or a jam ball throw. But we're not throwing in barbell snatches. Right? We're not doing clean and jerks. We're not doing explosive work that is heavily loaded, requires a lot of skill, and has a higher injury risk because now we're basically repeating the the exact same thing that we're, we said not to do by doing the accessory work before the compounds, uh, potentially even worse. Now, the only caveat here is if you are an Olympic lifter or you're a competitive crossfitter, of course, you're probably going to do some Olympic lifting and then you're going to do your heavy compound, but that's what you're training for. You're training to be good at that exact thing. You're not necessarily training to get lean or build muscle or get stronger. You're training to be better at snatching, be more explosive and be better at the sport of CrossFit. So there is times where you can do this, but for most people, especially people who just want to look good, the best thing to do is have an activation phase. Then you're going to go through a priming phase where you're using light weights, but being extremely explosive. So we're still firing that nervous system before you get into the heavy lifting. Then you go into your strength phase, which is your compound lift. Then you go into your accessory, which is the supplemental work. And then last but not least, you go into your metabolic work, which is either high rep hypertrophy work or some uh, fat loss stuff like assault bike, prowler, sled, rower, like some kind of conditioning. Um, so that's one of the biggest things I do with people who are, are approaching that age where they're like starting to be concerned with it. it. It's really just a matter of sequencing the exercises properly, um, adding tempos, adding things like that. Um, usually that causes you to lower the weights. I typically don't like going below f sometimes five reps. Like a lot of times I stay five reps and above. Sometimes I'll dip into like threes, but rarely ever ones unless the client specifically requests that from me. Like I have a client that, that I have a couple clients that request one rep tests every now and then, or just some maximal effort. So maybe they're not going hundred percent, but they want to do a one rep 
max, quote unquote. So we do implement those in, but for the most part, we're staying five to 10, 15 reps, anywhere in that five to 15 rep range, even better the eight to 15 rep range for the majority of their training, because the, the lower loads required in order to perform that much volume are, are just going to be easier on your joints. Um, you know, there is the argument that high volume programs are worse on your joints because of the repetition. But I, I would argue in my experience that heavy loads tend to be the ones that really mess with people's joints because as the load gets heavier, your body will compensate more. Um, and your form will give in. And usually that's what causes the injuries. Whereas with higher reps and higher volumes, you usually fail because, your muscle starts to fatigue or burn out, but you're using a lighter weight. So even if you do compensate, the injury risk is far lower. It's just not really that likely because the weight you're using is half, if not more or less than what you would use on a heavy lift that could injure the joint. Um, so in general, like we're lifting a little bit lighter. We're doing a little bit more higher reps. We're using tempos, rest periods, and intensification techniques, band, uh, chain and band accommodated resistance, things that are going to allow us to place more tension on the muscle, less tension on the joints. And then we're going to sequence our exercises properly. Um, the other thing I would say is adding some kind of cardio or conditioning and, and making it different as the time goes on. So you're not just running every time. You're not just doing the bike every time. You're not just doing soul cycle, but you're doing some sled pulls. You're doing some like long walks with a weight vest. You're doing some running. You're doing some rower. You're doing some assault bike. You're doing a variety of things, working your, uh, your energy systems, your metabolic system, because that's going to promote better immune function. It's going to promote better health. It's going to promote less fat accumulation. It's going to improve your recovery and your oxidative system, which is going to allow you to lift more efficiently. So I think cardio and conditioning is a, a missed component for a lot of people because they're just so focused on building muscle or just looking good that they think like I can just diet, which is true. But if we're talking about general health, it's good to have some kind of metabolic work in there as well. Um, the last thing I will say is with, with nutrition is, you know, really just keeping it simple, eating whole foods, like eat like an adult. If, if you're getting to that point, like, yeah, you could focus on quote unquote anti-inflammatory foods, but I think infl inflammation is very confused. It's a, it's a very, uh, misunderstood concept. And I think that it's very individual, first of all. Um, and I think people claiming that things cause inflammation, a lot of times they actually don't have any research or science to back up their claims at all. It's just kind of like gurus trying to scare people into their, their diet protocol. Um, however, like you can eat quote unquote anti-inflammatory foods, and focus on that because you're probably just going to feel better. It's probably going to be easier to digest. They're probably going to be more micronutrient dense anyway. Um, but in general, if 90% of your diet is whole foods, fruits, vegetables, produce, lean meats, fish, dairy, eggs, uh, you know, white rice, uh, sweet potato, things that digest really well, things that have a lot of nutrients and things that you can be consistent with like cooking at home so you can actually measure it and know what you're taking in. I think that you're going to be golden. I don't think you need to do anything special. Now, there's some people that as they get older, like a lower carb, higher fat diet does work well. Um, but for most people, it still is going to come down to calories. So it really doesn't matter if it's low carb or high carb. And the last thing with that is just that their protein needs go up. So as we age, certain hormones and functions that uh, induce an, an anabolic result, so help us build muscle, help us recover from training, um, and even trigger muscle protein synthesis, those things kind of start to slow down as we age. So it's actually important for them to get at least body weight, but if not a little bit more than body weight in protein per day so that they can avoid um, having that issue or having like very low, like there's 
they can avoid not getting the benefit of protein is what I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to say. You need to get enough protein. So usually I'm like 1.1, 1.2 grams per pound um, of people that are uh, getting older over 40. And, and even for some younger people, cause it doesn't hurt and it just helps them stay satiated. So um, that's, that's the rundown um, 17 and a half minutes on how to train and progress for longevity and health as you age. That was like a very frequent, frequently asked question that I think is more simple than people realize. Like it, it really comes down to like, hey, follow a smart training program, eat real food, get your sleep, don't stress too much and do some mobility. Like <laughs> you do that, you're gonna be fine. You don't need some, like don't buy a program that is specifically designed for 40 year old males who are suffering with low testosterone and thyroid dysfunction and have a busy work life and two kids and like, those crazy niche things that you're just like, man, you're trying so hard. That's one of the things that drives me crazy. I, it, I, I should have done that on this podcast. What drives me crazy in the industry? And that's one of them, like overly focused niches that people have. Like that is just, it's weird to me. It doesn't make sense. It's not, uh, no, you're, you should be a generalist. We work with everybody. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next thing on today's list, things I've changed my mind on. I've had this question asked to me over the years many times, but like, what are some things I've changed my mind on um, in general in the fitness space and the nutrition space, so on and so forth? And uh, I have a list of things. So the first thing on this list is cardio. I think like for a long time, and a lot of people get stuck in this, that like cardio is almost like bad. Like it's like like anti-cardio, right? Like because you don't need to do cardio to lose weight and you can just track calories, you shouldn't do cardio. Like there's no reason to do cardio. Why are you suffering on a treadmill? Um, or doing cardio destroys muscle. Like you're going to lose muscle. Like I remember thinking like, man, I'm in a muscle building phase. I can't do any conditioning because that's going to sacrifice muscle. I'm going to literally burn muscle. And it's like, no, do you have carbohydrates stored in your muscle right now? Do you have carbohydrates stored, glucose stored? Most likely, because if, unless you're on a hyper low calorie diet, you're probably going to have some stored glycogen, which is going to allow you to perform. Therefore, you are, your body's not going to sacrifice amino acids and, and, and muscle tissue to get the cardio done when it has other substrates available for energy that are more effective and more efficient, right? Hey, guys, I wanted to take a brief moment to mention something really cool before you jump back into the podcast. The thing I am talking about that is so damn cool is the tailored trainer. This is a personal trainer in your pocket. This is a one-stop shop to get access to all of my exclusive programming. Whether you can train three days, four days, five days, or even six days a week. If you want an upper-lower split, or a push-pull legs, or a full body, or a more athletic-based program, or you want conditioning, we literally have everything you can imagine and a private group that allows you to get feedback and critiques on your exercise form when you post videos for me to check out. And I'm available every single day to answer your questions. This is the place to get my advice and my training done for you with app software access that delivers the program to you every single day. So if you want access to the Taylor Trainer for less than a cup of coffee a day, yes, that's less than $2 a day, you can click the link in the description now. Head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash tailored-trainer and you can sign up today. Without any further ado, let's get back to the podcast. Like now... If you are 5% body fat three weeks out from stage, yeah, you got to be really specific with how you're doing cardio because you probably could lose muscle because your body has nothing to pull from at that point, right? Um, however, I think that with most people, what you realize is like if you have fuel coming in or any stored body fat, that's what your body's going to use. So it, 
I've kind of changed my stance on this for a couple reasons. One, because I've noticed it allows people to stay a little bit leaner while building muscle, but also it allows their oxidative and recovery system to improve. Um, I notice a significant difference in, in my performance on my hypertrophy and strength training days when I have one or two days of conditioning in my program as well, because there is a conditioning effect of conditioning, right? Like as you do more metabolic conditioning, you are becoming more conditioned. And what that means is you're going to be able to perform um, higher amounts of work capacity. So your work capacity improves, which means if I have a high volume training program, I'm going to be able to get through it more effectively and efficiently because I'm recovering faster in between sets, in between each rep, in between days of the week. Um, so it's really, really good for recovery. Like building your oxidative and aerobic system is actually really, really important in order to be able to perform enough volume and in, in intensity to train hard enough to build muscle or strength. Um, the other side of it is, is cardio and conditioning and, and uh, metabolic conditioning and aerobic work and things like that are very good, specifically aerobic. So like going in the lower to moderate intensity range versus high intensity intervals, which is more anaerobic, that aerobic range is going to be really helpful for your immune system. So, I mean, especially in a time like this, conditioning is great for you because we know that our immune systems need to be strong to stay healthy during the crisis. Um, but we also know in general, if you want to be a healthy individual, if you want to have a strong immune system, if you want to avoid getting sick, you want to avoid disease, it's probably a good idea to do some conditioning because it's going to make you healthier. It's going to keep you well conditioned. It's going to keep your body fat low enough to avoid diseases and sickness and stuff like that. Um, so in general, I think I've just changed my mind on cardio quite a bit. I've realized after more and more science came out that uh, I think it, it's less likely to burn your muscle away than I thought. I think that it's actually going to improve your ability to build muscle and strength as long as you don't overdo it. Um, of course, like if somebody's doing cardio every day for 60 minutes a session, like of course that's going to hamp, that's going to dampen your ability to um, it, it's to to build muscle because you're just burning too many calories. You have you're going into a deficit basically, and that's not the goal. Um, however, I think for most people, doing one or two sessions a week is actually going to be really beneficial for your health, for your recovery, for your performance, for your strength, for your muscle. Um, I just think it's smart. I think it's really good, and, and it creates a more well-rounded individual. I think with the boom of CrossFit and all the studies that have been done on uh, concurrent training, I think we're realizing more and more that – it's really not that big of a deal to do some concurrent training. So if you want to train for multiple things at once, like it's actually not as big of a deal. And, and what that means is like, do you want to train for strength and hypertrophy? Cool. Do you want to train for endurance and strength? Cool. Do you want to train CrossFit, which is power, strength, endurance, uh, glycolytic, like it's everything and <laughs> muscular endurance and cardiovascular endurance and anaerobic endurance and power development. It's like so many things. Cool. You can do that, right? It's, it's, it might take longer to get great at each of those things, but you can get good at them equally over time. Um, so I think cardio is something I've changed my mind on quite a bit, and it's actually something that I'm, I'm much more likely to include year-round, um, not in great amounts, but, but still within programs. The next thing is supplements, and I think that goes without question. Like when I first started, supplements were just so much more important to me in my mind. I thought they were such a big deal when in reality they're really not – um, you know, I was taking all my multivitamins, fish oil, vitamin C every day. Then I was taking, uh, highly branched cyclic dextrin and, and essential amino acids during my workout. I was having citrulline malate, beta alanine, creatine. And I think there was one more thing that I was putting in my pre-workout. I was making my pre-workout. Then I was having a whey protein shake 
after my workout. And then I was having glucose disposal agents before every carb-based meal. I was having a sleep supplement. Like the list goes on. Like I was just taking so many things. Um, and I still take a good amount of supplements today. Like if you look at my daily supplement routine, it is a lot, but it's completely different. I drink a greens drink and I do a multivitamin, a fish oil, a vitamin D, and I take magnesium at night, right? And sometimes digestive enzymes, but all very natural things, all very normal things. There's nothing crazy in that mix. Um, ashwagandha every once in a while, if I feel like I'm in a high stress period of time and I want to double down on like just managing cortisol and, and recovery, but for the most part, it's all very natural things and it's very like it's a low – it's a way smaller amount than it once was. But what I've realized over time is that supplements are, are exactly what they sound like. They are supplemental. They, they do a very, very, very small bit to help you. doesn't mean that they're not important at times because like I said, I still take fish oil. I still take vitamin D. I still take a multivitamin. I still take a pre-workout, uh, which is really just – I just take caffeine and betaine. Um, so there is an creatine and there is benefits to these things, but they all make at, at most like a 1% difference. Like the, the thought of like what kind, what would I look like? What would my results be like if I didn't take creatine versus if I did take creatine every day, it is literally less than 5% for sure. 5% at most, but probably like one, two or 3% difference. I'm, I'm 1% better which is barely anything. But if you're training six days a week, year round, looking at your physique constantly and trying to build over time, over the years, then that 1% matters because 1% compounded over every day, every week, every month, every year, that makes a big difference. So there is still value in supplements, but I've realized that there's less and less supplements that are actually going to be worth spending your money on. Um, and most of them are actually health promoting supplements. Um, so yeah, and then uh, the third thing that I have changed my mind on, I have quite a bit of things here, so we're going to go through them, <laughs> through them all. Uh, a recomposition. Uh, for a long time, it was just, you know, like you can't recomp. You can't simultaneously burn fat and build muscle. And the way I've changed my thought process on this a little bit is that, one, when you work with, and, and I think it's safe to say we've worked with over 1,000 people by now, and if you include the people I trained in the gym and all that stuff and people I've helped online, it's well over 1,000 people, thousands of people that I've helped and read stories about and, and, and consulted with and, and tweaked training for and, and things like that. And what I've realized with recomposition is even though the science points at it being extremely, extremely difficult, we see it happen time and time again. I, I have plenty of clients who I've seen completely recomp even at the advanced level and some of them not even with uh injury like 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 me like I recomped really well after in 2019 but it was after a knee surgery like I had knee surgery and I was out of the gym I was on crutches I gained a little body fat lost a little muscle of course I'm going to recomp I'm an advanced lifter who lost muscle and gained fat um, and stopped training for three months like when I come back to it of course I'm going to recomp quick but I've also seen advanced lifters that have not had an injury, haven't been bedridden, haven't had anything, but I've just been able to step in and tweak things enough to where we see a, a good recomp because their lifestyle has changed, their habits have changed, their sleep has changed, their stress has changed, whatever it may be. Um, so I've just realized more and more that it's uh, it's it's going to be possible for more people. Um and I also think too, like, like we see this in science. Like I have researcher friends that are showing like in the labs, they're seeing recomp from changing certain things. So I think the more we learn about training and nutrition, the more we can optimize our lifestyles, the more likely it is that recomp's possible. Um, and I also changed my thought process on the idea of what recomp actually is, because I think we have to remember that you can come to me and say, Hey, uh, I want to sign up, you know, I want to work with you for the next year. Like we're going to take 12 months and I want to recomp. 
okay, we're not going to try to simultaneously build muscle and burn fat at the same time. We are either going to start with muscle growth or fat loss and then switch gears. Because if you start now and then we finish in a year and you are leaner and have more muscle tissue than when you started, you just accomplished a recomposition. But we weren't simultaneously burning fat and building muscle. We spent time building muscle. We spent time maintaining. We spent time cutting. And then we spent time reverse dieting out of that to get you to a place now where you're leaner than you were but at a heavier weight because you have more muscle. Like that's a recomp, right? And people forget that recomps can take place over long periods of time. Um, And they make the most impressive before and afters. Um, Diet breaks are another thing that I have changed my mind on. I'm not going to dive into those too deep because we did a really good podcast with Jackson Pios on it. And I talked about this in another episode. But I think when diet breaks first became known and they were first studied, like intermittent dieting was studying where you're taking like some days of maintenance, some days not, some weeks of maintenance, some weeks of not, and a deficit. We we saw things that made us believe, we as in like the entire evidence-based community, like that hormonal changes were probably happening, right? Like we were removing metabolic adaptation to an extent. We were reversing some of those symptoms and we were probably improving hunger hormones like leptin and ghrelin in, in testosterone and sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen and progesterone and um, stress hormones like cortisol and things like that. And we're realizing it's less and less hormonal and it's more and more psychological. So it's less physiological, more psychological, but I still think because it allows you, to, it definitely allows better adherence and it allows better performance, uh, not for every session because it's only the sessions right after, but compared to someone not taking diet breaks, I'm still going to go with diet breaks because I think that it does play a significant role in uh, training performance and uh, making sure that um, you adhere to the diet. But then last but not least, I, there's no really clear data on this, but I still believe that you know if we can create a cortisol reduction from taking diet breaks because we increase carbs and it gives you a break. And even, even if that is a psychological thing, right? Like psychologically, this is a relief. So my cortisol lowers because I'm managing stress better because I have a break from the diet. Even if it is nothing physiological, it ends up becoming physiological because I'm not as stressed and it becomes way easier to adhere to a diet and to lose weight when you're not all stressed out. Um, So I've changed my thought process on why diet breaks work, but I haven't changed my mind on the fact that they work. Um, Okay. uh, The last thing is intensification techniques. I think like when I first started, intensification techniques were like the shit. I mean, it was, it was very bro science dungeon style training, but we were basically throwing in drop sets, adding change, throwing in myo reps, doing EDTs, EMOMs, like AMRAPs. We were doing everything we could, like uh, force negatives. We were doing so many different intensification techniques. And then as more and more science came out comparing using some of these techniques versus not, they realized that, you know, a lot of times they limit your performance because you fatigue so quickly and that inherently lowers your volume of that session and that inherently leads to less muscle growth, less strength. So as time went on and studies came out, I actually kind of started to realize like maybe these intensification techniques are just fun. They're not as scientifically proven to build more muscle like we would think or that we would read on random blogs online. Um, but what I will say is, is my mind changed again, not too long ago, but I would say like a year or two ago, um, because I think coaches go through these waves of like, you step into it and you're not very familiar with science and you don't know how to read science so it, or research and you don't know research. So it, you kind of go with what you see happening in the trenches, right? And for me, that was these intensification techniques and they were working. Like I was getting bigger and mu- more muscular and stronger and leaner. And then over time, you read more and more research, you get smarter and smarter, you meet more people, and you start to kind of go almost too evidence-based. So now I'm at this point where 
I start thinking that nothing matters, just be in a deficit and lift. Like, the, But then it becomes, okay, now we're so science-driven that we're just boring as fuck and people don't want to adhere to the plan because you're just – it's just monotonous. Like you're doing the same thing every week for 6, 8, 12, 16 weeks. You just go on a deficit, just flexible diet, just fall. Like there's no cool changes or tweaks or advanced strategies. And even if an advanced strategy gives you a 1% difference, if it motivates you to go harder, to give more effort, it's a win. It's going to lead to better results because your consistency goes up, your effort goes up, your thought process goes up, your motivation goes up. It's worth it. Um, so I'm hu- I'm actually big on intensification techniques. Now, I'm not huge on like I'm not throwing in drop sets on everybody's program all the time. However, I do like using AMRAPs, EMOMs, EDTs, intensification techniques like bands or accommodating resistance or force negatives if they have a spotter or drop sets. Because it makes it fun. It just makes it challenging. It just makes it really enjoyable to just do those kind of things. And when you can continually spice training up and, and stay motivated and stay amped up to train, your training intensity is going to be higher and your ability to get results is going to be better. Um, so those are the things I've changed my mind on. Cardio, supplements, recomp, diet breaks, periodization, and intensification techniques. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped periodization. Uh, periodization, my thoughts have changed on this uh, quite a bit. Um not necessarily for nutrition because once I really locked in a fundamental uh, – besides the diet break piece I already talked about, nutrition is basically the same what I believe nutritional periodization to be. But training periodization has changed. Once upon a time, I think I, I really believe that you had to spend each t- each block like isolated in one focus. So this is a strength block. This is a hypertrophy block or this is a intensification block. This is an accumulation block. Um, but now I realize that, uh, an undulation or a concurrent model actually works really well. So doing multiple things every week. So maybe we're training in some low reps and some high reps. Maybe we're doing a little conditioning and we're doing a little, um, strength work. Maybe we're doing some endurance and some high intensity, like sprint work and aerobic work using multiple energy systems, using multiple intensities, multiple volume bases, I think works really well, especially for the gen pop to be well-rounded. So something I've changed my mind on is that, just the idea that you have to be in these isolated blocks versus an undulated or concurrent model, which is typically what I actually go to now with my advanced lifters and my everyday people. All right, last one we have today, training to failure. Should you do it? Should you train to failure? Is it worth doing? Um, my, my thoughts have gone so back and forth on this, um, very similar to the idea of intensification techniques. I think like when I first started, if you weren't going balls to the wall, if you weren't going all out, if you weren't failing on your last rep, then you weren't giving it your all. You weren't trying hard enough. Um, if you weren't testing your one rep max every month, what are you doing? Like, why are you trying to get stronger? Like, I think I, I took it too far in one direction, which most people do in the beginning of their career with many different things. Like I did that with dieting. I did that with training. I did that with cardio, did everything, business. Um, you, you learn something and you go too far. So I think that like because of my environment of like very grungy gym, powerlifting, functional stuff, sleds, chains, graffiti on the walls, like it was just a dungeon. It was, I loved it. But that vibe and that feel and that environment led us to training to failure more frequently than is probably – advantageous. Um, and to me, it was a mindset, you know, if I'm not pushing my hardest, I'm not growing physically, mentally, period. So I think at the beginning, it was like, you have to go balls to the wall. Failure is good because going to failure means you're giving it your all. And then 
uh, I got more and more science-based, more and more research-oriented, and I started to realize, like, man, more and more research keeps coming out and saying that actually if you leave one to two reps, maybe even three reps left in the tank, you're probably going to get better long-term results because your recovery is better. So what they were finding is that, like, you know, whether you go to failure, like, let's say you go to failure, you get 100% of your maximal gains available for that set. Um, or if you leave two reps in the tank, you are getting 95%. Okay. So you get 5% less gains out of 100% uh, if you do two reps high failure. And these are completely random percentage I'm throwing out there. So there's no literature that shows these exact numbers. But my, it's, it's the point that matters. So you get 5% improvement of gains if you go to failure. However, the systemic fatigue, meaning total fatigue, your central nervous system, your muscular system, the, your DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, your joints – the systemic fatigue of going to failure is 25% greater than if you leave two in the tank. So now we have to kind of think of the risk versus reward. And this is like the whole uh, uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio that Mike Israel talks about that. I really like how he, he kind of thought of that is like, what's the risk to reward? Like how fatiguing is this exercise for the benefit? So if I leave two in the tank, yes, I get slightly less gains, but it allows me to recover better, which means tomorrow's session is going to be better the next time I train this muscle group is going to be sooner and it's going to be more effective. Um, and I'm going to have more steady progress with less deloads over time. So I think that, you know, then I realized, okay, we don't want to go failure. Like always leave two in the tank. Like you should leave two in the tank. Science says leave two in the tank. That's the best zone. You're going to get the best gains ever. And then, you know, as you coach more and more people, you realize a few things. One thing you realize is that a lot of people don't know what it actually feels like to leave two in the tank. So me saying, to RIR doesn't really do justice, right? Because a good example of this, and I've used this study as an example so many times, is when they had the bench press uh, individuals bench pressing. And they had a spotter, and they said, put, put your 10 rep max on the bar, and we're going to do as many reps as you can. And the lowest score was 12. The average was 16, and the highest was 23, 24, something like that, which means that the average was six reps higher than what they thought was possible for themselves. And the lowest was two reps higher. <laughs> so it's basically everybody underestimated their own potential of strength, which means that if you go in there and you think two RIR, you might actually be performing four RIR or six RIR or something greater. So sometimes for some clients, I actually want to program a zero RIR because I know that they don't understand how to gauge that intensity properly. So I need them to try to go closer to failure because we know that there is a sweet spot for maximal results. If we want to maximize the progress we make in the gym, we do have to get relatively close to failure. This is why we should leave one or two reps in the tank, sometimes go to failure. And if you don't understand how to leave those reps in the tank because you're just not well educated or experienced in the gym, which is totally fine, then you're probably going to want to lean on the side of failure so that you can actually hit the right RIR, which is going to be one or two by the time you get to failure for that individual, especially for like a beginner. As you get more advanced, I think RPE and RIR become more useful and you can kind of stay two reps away from failure on 80 to 90% of your training. However, I think there's value in going to failure frequently on things like curls or lateral raises or hip thrusts, things that are not as systemically fatiguing, hip abductions even better, like something like that, band work. Uh, but if we think of a lateral raise, right, like, you know, I can do 10 reps easy with 20 pounds dumbbells. Like, I mean, I, I can feel the muscle, but I mean, it's not super hard. I can barely do 10 reps with 25 pound dumbbells. So what do I do in this scenario? I either go to failure with twenties and add reps, or I 
continue using 25s for all my sets and just do as many reps as I can to go to failure. It's not systemically fatiguing. It's not going to bang up my joints, but it's going to allow me to maximize progress because it's it's a it's an exercise that you can't have the there's no like there's no small tiny like I can't add one pound. I can't do 21 pound dumbbells, right? Like so you have to be more specific uh, in in with what you're programming failure for. And I think these isolation movements, you actually can and should go to failure quite often, actually, because I think it's the only way you're going to have the high enough intensity to get a lot out of those exercises. And it's the only way you're going to choose the right weights for some of them, too. Um, so my, my training to failure, I've changed my thoughts on a lot. I think 80 to 90 percent of your training should be just just one to two reps shy of failure. Actually, I would say this. I would say 60 percent of your training should be one to two reps shy of failure. I would say 20 percent of your training should be like two to three, maybe even four reps shy of failure because sometimes it's just skill work, warm-up sets, whatever it may be, um, or you have like bad joints, you got to worry about that. And then 20% of your training should be to absolute failure. And that should be saved for inverted rows on TRX or band pull-aparts or lateral raises or dumbbell curls, you know, like uh, leg extensions, things like that that are not systemically fatiguing. And it might be the only way that you can truly maximize tension placed on the muscle is by going to failure. And then I will also say this, like I stayed away from it too, but I think as I've had a longer career coaching people, coaching myself, building a business in this industry, I've realized more and more and more how much the gym plays a, a role in your mental development, uh, your mindset. And I think going to failure and pushing yourself to that limit is one of the best ways possible to stimulate your mind to grow. Like um, really, really, really important. So for me, all those years of going to failure taught me so much about how to like work ethic, like how to go hard, how to push myself to what I thought was not possible, how to challenge myself beyond the line that I thought um, I could get to. So really, really important from a mental side as well. So with failure, I've changed my mind both ways over the years, whereas at first it was mandatory. Then it became like stay as far away from it as you can because you don't want to fail in your training. And then it came to like it's probably a middle ground, which is the, it tends to be with most things, right? Like cardio, supplementation, recomposition, diet breaks, everything I talked about today how to train for progress and longevity. Like all those things kind of relate back to the same idea that there's this gray area and this balance that you need to have in order to stimulate the best results possible. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up, or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of The Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.